Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussion of abuse, incest, murder, and gore. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. In the rural settlement of Grobern, Germany, gossip spread quickly, especially when it came to the Gruber family. So when a local merchant brought them up to Lorenz Schlittenbauer on April 1st, 1922, it caused quite a stir. The family consisted of 64-year-old Andreas Gruber and his 72-year-old wife, Cecilia. Their 35-year-old daughter, Victoria, lived with them along with her two small children, 7-year-old Cecilia Jr. and 2-year-old Josef. With so many people living there, their farm, known as Hinterkaifeck, was usually a bustling hub of activity. But that morning, it was eerily quiet. At first, Lorenz wasn't concerned. The Grubers were notoriously private. Besides, Lorenz already had his share of run-ins with the family. He wasn't exactly eager to go back up to their farm. But the longer Hinterkaifeck remained silent, the louder Lorenz's doubts grew. Three days later, he organized a search party. The group marched over to the farm. Normally, cantankerous old Andreas would have come out to question why they were on his property. Or the younger and decidedly less grouchy Victoria would have waved a warm hello. But today, nobody acknowledged them. When Lorenz reached the barn, his worst fears were confirmed. Four mangled bodies lay covered in hay, each stacked on top of the next. Someone had bludgeoned the Gruber family to death. Inside the house, Lorenz found something even more disturbing. Two-year-old Yosef and the live-in maid had also been slaughtered in their beds, six corpses in total, and not a single clue as to who'd committed the gruesome murders. A century later, the Hinterkaifeck slaughter case still runs cold. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first of two episodes on the Hinterkaifeck slaughter. In 1922, this gruesome event transformed a small, unsuspecting Bavarian farm into the site of an infamous unsolved case. This episode, we'll learn about the Grubers, a family that was the subject of village gossip even before their demise. We'll unravel the Grubers' horrible fate from their sudden disappearance to the discovery of their mangled bodies, as well as the bizarre investigation that ended with their six missing heads. Next episode, we'll explore a century's worth of suspects and theories, including an escaped mental asylum patient, a pair of burglar brothers, or one of Victoria Gruber's lovers. When the only evidence is town gossip, every rumor counts. 
We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. In the 1860s, Hinterkaifeck was built on vast farmland in the state of Bavaria, Germany. One large L-shaped building consisted of the machine house, the barn, and the living quarters. A second, smaller building served as a tool shed, while the rest of the property was framed by dense forest. The nearest town, known as Groburn, was less than a mile down the road from the farm. A slightly larger settlement called Kaifek lay south of the farm, which is where the farm's name came from. Hinter meaning behind, so behind Kaifek. In 1885, the unknown owner of Hinter Kaifek died and left the farm to his wife, a woman named Cecilia. There are no known records of when or how Cecilia met 26-year-old Andreas Gruber, a wiry, hard-working local. Perhaps she saw Andreas as the perfect man to help manage the farm. Or maybe Andreas saw opportunity in the property-owning older widow. And of course, maybe it was love. Regardless, Cecilia married Andreas one year after her husband's death, making him co-owner of Hinterkaifeck. And in 1887, Cecilia gave birth to their first daughter, Victoria. The family made more than enough to support a newborn, but they were also frugal. Records are unclear over what their farm actually produced and sold, but their wealth drew plenty of unwanted attention. The surrounding villages, Kaifek and Groburn, stayed entertained and connected via gossip. And since the Grubers were fairly private people, they bore the brunt of the rumors. They were polite and helpful, but no one considered them warm or friendly. They never hosted neighbors or joined community celebrations. Some saw their isolation as hostile, but most just found it strange. Andreas was the target of most of the hearsay. His stinginess, rudeness, and temper drew plenty of criticism, along with his abusive nature. 
There were whispers that he beat Cecilia throughout their marriage. And when Victoria was old enough, the abuse landed on her as well. One of the family's biggest scandals happened in the early 1890s. The couple had a second daughter, Sophia. But around her second birthday, the young girl mysteriously died. Andreas was rumored to lock his children in the farm cellar for days as punishment. So those who knew the family suspected that if Sophia wasn't killed by one of Andreas's violent outbursts, she likely died of neglect. Plenty of villagers considered these stories tall tales. The Grubers might not have been the friendliest people, but they made up for it elsewhere. They treated their employees well, they lent their neighbors food as long as it could be paid back, and they hired those who desperately needed work. If the rumors affected Victoria, it didn't show. As she grew up, she mingled with the neighbors more than her parents did. She was hardworking, pretty, and approachable. Her normalcy seemed to calm people's suspicions of the family. In 1914, 27-year-old Victoria married Carl Gabriel, a man from the nearby town of Law. Little is known about Carl or the arrangement of this marriage, whether it was for love or more practical matters. The latter seems likely, since this union led to changes in Hinterkaifeck's management. For unknown reasons, Andreas and Cecilia Sr. had to pass down ownership of Hinterkaifeck to Victoria. Carl was also made part owner of the farm thanks to their marriage contract. Whether it was Victoria's union, the presence of Carl in the house, or the new ownership, the first year of their marriage was a disaster, especially for Carl. Testimonies suggested that Andreas mistreated Carl and refused to step down as patriarch. Based on Andreas's history of abuse, people whispered about screaming matches and violent fights. Carl bitterly complained to neighbors about how unhappy he was at the Grubers. He told his friend Lorenz Schlittenbauer that the family was greedy. They even made him skip meals to save money. Shortly after the wedding, Carl returned to his parents' home. He needed to get away from his tormentors at Hinterkaifeck, and if that meant leaving his wife behind, so be it. That same year, World War I began. In the early months of the conflict, German citizens felt a great deal of national pride over defending their country. Carl was drafted into the military four months after marrying Victoria. Some said his determination to serve came from his sense of nationalism. Others suggested it was to escape his new family, even though Victoria had gotten pregnant. In December 1914, Carl fought in a battle near the French border. He was sent to explore the trenches, but never made it back. Two fellow soldiers identified his body, but in the chaos of war, it was never recovered. Less than a month after his death, Carl and Victoria's child was born, a daughter named Cecilia after her grandmother. But the Grubers didn't seem too upset over their son-in-law's absence. According to rumors, Cecilia Sr. shrugged when she heard of his death, saying, quote, Now the divorce is here. End quote. As the war escalated, life in rural Bavaria grew more complicated. 
Young men like Carl were drafted into the military. Agricultural communities felt the economic impact of providing for the army. Farmers were overworked, understaffed, and dealing with the burden of inflation. But the Grubers managed to get by thanks to their infamous frugality. In late 1918, Victoria began a relationship with Carl's friend, 44-year-old Lorenz Schlittenbauer. Lorenz was considered a catch. He was influential, well-liked, and recently widowed. As the romance progressed, Lorenz asked Andreas for permission to marry Victoria. For a reason most villagers never understood, Andreas refused, violently. According to rumors, the patriarch locked Victoria in a closet when Lorenz arrived. After a brief argument, Andreas chased the young man off Hinterkaifeck with a scythe. The situation became more scandalous in 1919 when Victoria gave birth to a little boy named Josef, and Lorenz was the father. Still, Andreas didn't accept Victoria's lover as part of the family. Eventually, Lorenz married another woman. One would think the bitter history between him and the Grubers ruined all future relations between them, but this wasn't necessarily the case. Lorenz remained friendly with the Grubers and told others he considered the situation settled. Those who knew the families found this strange. But the Grubers carried on as usual. Victoria sang in the choir, and young Cecilius started elementary school. The rest of the family stayed quiet doing chores around the farm. Gossip slowed as tensions settled. For a brief moment, the limelight on the Grubers dimmed. But in late 1921, Hinterkaifeck became the subject of village buzz again. This time, the news wasn't about Andreas, Victoria, or either of her children. It was about the live-in maid, Krizenz Rieger, who'd quit her position suddenly. Apparently, she believed Hinterkaifeck was haunted. Coming up, the Grubers realize they aren't alone. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from Parcast. When you think of a criminal, do you picture a killer, a gangster, a thief? I bet you didn't think it could be the little old lady down the street who murdered her tenants. Every Wednesday on my series, Female Criminals, meet the unlikeliest of felons, mothers, neighbors, and unsuspecting lovers with a penchant for dangerous behavior. Discover the psychology and motives behind their disturbing crimes and find out where their story stands today. But that's not all. Airing right now on Female Criminals is our special five-part look at the world's most infamous femme fatales, women who were deceptive and deadly, but not always the villain. Catch these episodes and more by following the Spotify original from Parcast, Female Criminals. New episodes premiere weekly. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Up until the 1920s, the Gruber family had been a constant source of gossip for surrounding neighbors. Between Andreas Gruber's violence and Victoria's love affairs, the rural communities surrounding the Hinterkaifeck farm had plenty to discuss. But the whispering escalated when the Gruber's maid, Krizenz Rieger, suddenly quit. Apparently, she believed a ghost was haunting the property. Krizenz told Andreas she'd heard footsteps coming from the attic on more than one occasion. While trying to sleep, the distant but consistent noise kept her on high alert. Krizenz couldn't shake the horrible feeling that someone was watching her. Whether cleaning, dressing, or sleeping, a pair of invisible eyes seemed to follow her everywhere. After a few weeks of growing paler, thinner, and more terrified, Krizenz handed in her notice. At first, Andreas didn't believe the maid's claims of a malevolent spirit haunting the farm. But after she left, the thudding footsteps were heard by others in the house. Victoria complained to a neighbor that she couldn't sleep. Young Cecilia kept dozing off in class. When Andreas finally heard the steps himself, he tore the house apart. He searched the living quarters, the barn, even the machine house for a culprit, but he couldn't find any troubling signs. Until Andreas eventually searched the tool shed. This was a smaller, separate building near the main farmstead. There, the lock was tampered with as if someone had broken in. But other than that, nothing seemed to be amiss. Despite Andrea's insistence that nobody was in the house, the footsteps persisted. As the whole family became aware of the chilling noises, the ghostly encounters increased. One day, a Munich newspaper appeared on the farm, except the paper didn't belong to any of the family members. In fact, there wasn't anyone in the area who subscribed to it. Munich was 40 miles away, so what was the paper doing at Hinterkaifeck? Items didn't just appear out of thin air. They also vanished without explanation. For instance, a pair of Andreas's house keys went missing. And in early 1922, he was so spooked that he decided to confide in Lorenz Schlittenbauer, his daughter's former lover. Andreas told Lorenz he'd recently found a trail of footprints in the snow. They led from the woods up to the farmhouse's back door, but there were no prints that indicated the person had ever left. He asked if Lorenz had seen anything or anyone suspicious lurking around the farm. Lorenz said he hadn't experienced anything out of the ordinary. We aren't sure why, but Andreas didn't want to alert the authorities. The Gruber patriarch even turned down an offer to borrow a neighbor's gun. These choices proved to be fateful. On April 1st, 1922, a tradesman came to Lorenz Schlittenbauer's house to drop off coffee. 
offhandedly, the trader mentioned that Hinter Kaifek had seemed empty when he stopped by that morning. Normally, the Grubers were bustling about, Andreas tinkering in the machine room, Victoria and Cecilia Sr. tending to the cattle, little Cecilia and Josef playing in the yard. But that day, there was nothing. This struck Lorenz as peculiar, but not concerning. Perhaps business had called the Grubers elsewhere. Later, the postman saw the Gruber's family dog tied up near the barn, suggesting someone had recently put him outside. Perhaps the coffee trader just missed the family. Over the weekend, neighbors saw smoke coming from the Gruber's chimney, which indicated someone was home. Furthermore, the dog had been tended to and the livestock appeared to have been fed. However, the eerie silence disturbed neighbors. The Grubers were not ones to slack off for an entire weekend. Where was the bustle and noise of the farm? The activity? The arguing? On April 4th, three days after the coffee trader visited Hinter Kaifek, a mechanic flagged down Lorenz. He said he went to the Grubers' farm to fix the feed-cutting machine, but nobody was there to let him in. So, the mechanic dismantled the door to the machine room, went about his tasks, and then reassembled the door before he left. He asked Lorenz to tell the family he'd stopped by. By this point, Lorenz was probably nervous. After asking around, he realized that little Cecilia failed to attend school the last two days. Victoria had also missed a walk with her friends. Lorenz sent his nine and 16-year-old sons to check on the farm. The boys peeked through the windows, but they couldn't see anyone inside. So Lorenz took matters into his own hands. Keep in mind, Victoria claimed Lorenz was her son Yosef's father. And while Lorenz doubted this at times, he was fond of the boy. He couldn't bear the thought of something happening to him or Victoria. The afternoon of April 4th, Lorenz recruited two other neighbors to help him scope out the farm. At around 5 p.m., the small search party stepped onto Hinter Kaifek's property. Roaring winds broke the silence of the vast farmland while Lorenz led the way. He'd been on the property plenty of times during his relationship with Victoria and was familiar with the layout. As we mentioned earlier, the L-shaped building had three parts, the machine room, the barn, and the house. On this day, all but one entry was locked. Since the mechanic had left the machine room open, the trio started there. The room seemed stale and unattended compared to the farm's usual energy. It was unlike Andreas to slack off on production. But for the most part, Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. So after a brief scan of the room, Lorenz and his friends moved on to the barn. Except the door that connected the machine room and barn was locked. More than locked, it seemed jammed shut with a rod. Using brute force, Lorenz and the neighbors managed to break open the door. Aside from the milling cattle, the barn appeared still. Lorenz only took a few steps into the building when he stumbled over a pile of hay. Michael Pohl, one of Lorenz's companions, pointed at the floor. Sticking out of the bed of straw was a bare human 
foot. For a moment, nobody spoke. Lorenz, who appeared oddly calm, tugged the limb further out of the pile. Attached to the foot was the dead body of Andreas Gruber. The right side of Andreas's face appeared to be smashed. His whole head was soaked with blood. Andreas's cheekbones had protruded from his shredded flesh and his right eye socket was concave. In the mess of hay, Lorenz noticed more strange shapes. He brushed the straw away to find the bodies of Victoria, Cecilia Sr., and seven-year-old Cecilia Jr., mercilessly stacked atop one another. Whoever did this didn't try hard to conceal their crime. Instead, it looked like they just wanted the bodies out of their way. As Lorenz examined the corpses, he noticed that Cecilia Sr.'s head had also been crushed on the right side. Victoria's skull seemed broken in a similar fashion. However, her body was also covered in small, star-shaped wounds. The men could hardly look at Cecilia Jr. The seven-year-old's jaw was completely shattered and there was a bloody slit across her throat. Her hands clenched large clumps of hair, hair that appeared to be her own ripped out in torment. The two neighbors stayed in the barn while Lorenz volunteered to comb the house. He didn't care if the killer was still lurking about. He was ready to take on anyone that came between him and two-year-old Yosef. But the worst had already happened. Lorenz found Yosef lying lifeless in his crib. Just like his elders, the toddler's head had been impaled. One of Victoria's dresses was stretched across the boy, covering his body, just like the hay had covered his dead family members. Lorenz returned to the barn, somehow still collected. He asked the others to help him search the living quarters for any clues or signs of the killer. That's when they found the new maid, Maria, dead in her room. None of the men recognized Maria. After all, she'd only just arrived at Hinterkaifeck. Next to her body was a rucksack still filled with her clothes. She hadn't even gotten the chance to unpack. Aside from a blunt force head injury, Maria had a hole in the back of her skull it was almost four centimeters deep, seemingly caused by a pickaxe. Unable to stomach the massacre any longer, Lorenz and his friends alerted authorities. It wasn't long until word of the gruesome murders spread throughout the local villages, causing a small crowd to gather outside the property. The whole situation didn't make much sense. In the days leading up to the discovery, the cattle seemed to be fed, the dog had been tended to, and the chimney was burning. Someone was living on that farm, and it clearly wasn't the Gruber family. Coming up, rumors and evidence collide when the family's skulls go missing. Now, back to the story. 
The brutal slaughter of the Gruber family in the spring of 1922 shattered all illusion of safety within the sleepy community of Groburn. Whoever committed the heinous crime stayed in the house for days afterwards. They even kept up with the family's chores. On April 5th, the day after the bodies were discovered, Inspector Georg Reingruber arrived from the Munich Police Department. Munich was roughly 40 miles south, and the city had its own issues. Post-World War I, Munich experienced an increase in crime and political turmoil. Sending a chief investigator meant that these horrible killings astounded the veteran police force. First, investigators put together a timeline. The community noticed the Grubers had gone missing on Saturday, April 1st, but police suspected the killings happened the day before. That's the day that Maria, the family's new maid, had arrived. The fact that she hadn't unpacked her bags led authorities to assume she'd gotten there only a few hours before her violent demise. Cecilia Sr. and Victoria were fully dressed, but Andreas was in his undershirt and trousers while young Cecilia wore a nightgown. This suggested the family was getting ready to sleep, especially since Josef and Maria were already in bed. The murders had to have taken place at night. Inspector Reingruber suspected that the family members were lured into the barn one by one. Experiments later showed that screams from that part of the property couldn't be heard from the living quarters. So if they were slaughtered one by one, there was no reason for the others to suspect something was wrong. A court physician named Johann Baptiste Aumuller arrived at the farm the same day as Reingruber. He performed the autopsies right there inside the barn. He concluded that the biggest wounds were caused by a pickaxe or a similar tool, just as Lorenz and his neighbors had suspected. This same weapon could have easily made the star-shaped wounds on Victoria's face, but authorities couldn't be certain. The murder weapon was nowhere to be found. Almuller also discovered that Victoria and Cecilia Sr. received more head trauma than the others. The killer continued to strike these two even after they were dead. Reingruber wondered if this was tied to a motive. The most horrific detail from Almuller's investigation regarded young Cecilia. Gaping wounds covered the seven-year-old's face. Someone had not only hit her with enough force to shatter her jaw, but they'd also cut her throat with a knife. Despite her injuries, Al Miller believed that Cecilia Jr. survived her attack for hours. She ripped out large chunks of her hair, likely due to shock and agonizing pain. Al Miller wasn't sure how long she'd suffered stacked amongst her family's corpses before succumbing to her wounds. The autopsy results puzzled Inspector Reingruber. There was plenty of destruction from the crime, but no evidence pointing to a suspect. However, locals told the Munich chief all about the Gruber's hidden fortune. Reingruber jumped on this information. Money had to be the motive behind this gruesome act. But as police investigated further, they discovered large sums of cash hidden around the house. If the killer wanted money, they didn't look very hard especially considering they lingered on the property for days after the family was dead. 
After dismissing burglary as a motive, investigators were at a loss for leads. Inspector Reingerber left the farm and continued operating remotely out of the Munich station. This distance between the crime scene and these detectives may sound strange, but the Hinterkaifeck slaughter attracted the attention of countless other investigators across multiple police forces and municipalities. In order to operate effectively, they needed the resources available to them in Munich. Even with all of this help, police struggled to find any legitimate theories over who killed the Grubers and why. Inspector Reingruber, grasping at straws, pointed to convicted criminals, even an escapee from an insane asylum. Problem was, most of these leads didn't have a motive or any connection to the Gruber family. Desperate for answers, other investigators relied on a more metaphysical approach. In the 19th century, mediums, hypnotists, and clairvoyants worked as spiritual guides and entertainers. One trick that captured an audience's attention was when a medium provided the unknown details of a crime scene. Around 1918, these mediums began specializing in detection. The war had left gaping social, economic, and political holes in Germany's society. These gaps were filled with anything and everything, including clairvoyance, who became a somewhat legitimate investigative method. They were called criminal telepaths. And since these were desperate times, officials took desperate measures. In a last-ditch effort, court physician Johann Baptist Almuller decided to consult these metaphysical experts, but they needed one unconventional tool, the Gruber family's heads. Criminal telepaths had a variety of methods. Sometimes they fell into trances and unlocked clues from the dead. Other times they claimed to be able to retrace a criminal's path. So it's hard to say how unusual this decapitation approach was. Either way, Almuller was willing to give it a shot. He sent the skulls to Munich, where mediums examined the battered faces. It's unclear what these criminal telepaths were looking for in this circumstance. Perhaps they were hoping to open a line of communication with the Grubers themselves. Maybe they wanted to uncover a spiritual energy that could outline a motive or killer. As you might have expected, this shot-in-the-dark method turned up no information or leads. But strangely, the skulls were kept in Munich for further investigation. It's unclear who ordered this and why. But one thing was certain. The Gruber family was laid to rest without their heads. As time passed, the skulls remained in Munich, perhaps waiting for a more skilled clairvoyance examination. But after World War II, the heads vanished. To this day, no one has any clues as to where they went or who could have taken them. Inspector Reingruber wasn't finding any answers. He didn't know that the key to this case didn't lie with autopsies, murder weapons, or clairvoyance. It was amongst the rumors. Jakob Siegel was one of the men who'd helped Lorenz uncover the Gruber's bodies that fateful afternoon. He was interrogated by police when they arrived at the crime scene on April 5th. 
and he summarized the day's event with zero accusations. But once he was off the record, Jakob's tune changed. When Jakob retold the event to friends, he described Lorenz's behavior as bizarre. Allegedly, when Lorenz came to him about the Grubers, he made an offhand comment. Something along the lines of, we should check to see if the family was killed. When they did find the bodies, Jakob couldn't understand how Lorenz remained so calm and composed. His friend showed no signs of shock or repulsion. Jakob also felt that Lorenz knew his way around the property a little too easily. To more than a few friends, he called Lorenz the Kaifek Killer. Over time, investigators realized Lorenz had a motive. They'd heard about his relationship with Victoria, his fights with Andreas, and his possible parentage of two-year-old Josef. What the police didn't know was that tugging on this thread of gossip would unravel much more than they'd bargained for. When questioned about his relationship to Yosef, Lorenz said he wasn't sure if he was the father. He did have an affair with Victoria prior to her pregnancy, but he always assumed the father was someone else. When asked who, Lorenz didn't hesitate. He said it was Andreas Gruber. According to some reports, Andreas's incestuous affair with his daughter was a well-known rumor. The behavior started when she was 16 years old and continued up until her death. Allegedly, Lorenz reported Andreas to the authorities on two occasions for morality charges. The second time, in 1919, Andreas was thrown in jail. Although Victoria claimed Yosef was Lorenz's son, Lorenz told a friend that he believed Andreas was the father. But less than a month later, Lorenz mysteriously withdrew his complaint. Suddenly, he reclaimed the parentage of Yosef, and the courts released Andreas. From that point on, Lorenz paid child support for the boy. But this was a strange thing to do if he believed Andreas was the father. According to Lorenz's testimony, Victoria approached him when Andreas was arrested. She promised him that Yosef was his son and begged him to acknowledge that fact. She also offered to give Lorenz money to pay child support so it wouldn't cost him a thing. She just wanted to free Andreas. In terms of what this meant for the case, if Andreas was incestuous and violent, perhaps he was also murderous and suicidal. Or maybe someone had discovered the family's sin and taken it upon themselves to cleanse the farm. In all the confusion, one thing remained clear. The Hinterkaifeck killings were more complicated than anyone ever imagined. Throughout the next century, investigators tried to untangle the web of mystery surrounding the Hinterkaifeck slaughter. Even though technology and forensics have developed, evidence from the case seemingly disappeared after World War II. But rumors and gossip led to some of the most valid theories to date. Theories that include an escaped asylum patient and a pair of brother thieves. Next time, we'll explore our suspects and their motives in more depth. 
Perhaps the complicated matter of Yosef's paternity sparked the brutal killings. The murderer could be any of the several men with whom Victoria had affairs, including Lorenz, her first husband Carl, who was presumed dead after World War I, or even her own father. Then again, maybe the Gruber's maid was right about a spirit haunting the farm. After all, what mortal being could commit the atrocities of the hinter Kaifex slaughter? Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with part two of the Hinterkaifeck Slaughter. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Kit Fitzgerald, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Alex Benedon, fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Brian Petrus. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 